Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. I, uh, I was just going to say, on top of that, one of the things really cool about our mental health fund is I think we've helped 16 people in the, since we started that, which was last summer. Uh, so that's been really cool, and it's really been, it's been really cool to see people who have, um, you know, I'm just going to be honest with you, mental health is really, really important, but very hard to find, like, good help, if that makes sense. Uh, whether it's just a lot of money, time, uh, maybe I've been a part of, like, counselors that just weren't a very good fit, and it's discouraging because it feels like dating. You're like, i got to go back to another counselor and spend three weeks just, like, saying everything all over again so that they can help me. Uh, and so we've tried to just, like, how can we help you not only financially, um, and so we help provide aid. Uh, we've kind of got to the point now where we want to help subsidize and, and help you own that, but, uh, but also have counselors that we know are good and that can help you and that don't make that process exhausting. So if that's something you're interested in, let me know. Uh, we're at the point now where we are helping far more than we thought, um, but I don't know. I think we're just going to keep helping people and figure out where money comes from for it because it's been a really great ministry. So I'm telling you that Nathan's probably sweating, but uh, we'll figure it out. <laughs> the Lord will provide. I believe it, especially for something important like that. Um, yeah. So if you have your Bibles, turn to, believe it or not, the book of Matthew. Um, if you don't know why that was funny, welcome. It's your first week. Uh, we've been in Matthew for 64 weeks, I think. We have Bibles in the back. Someone can grab one for you if you'd like. You can keep it and steal it, or you can use your phones. We won't judge you here. It will not be on the screen for the most part, just because I want you to have it in front of you. Uh, we, we are going through what we call the storm, hence the edgy bumper video. And this is part six of Matthew. So we are we were just walking through this journey, seeing literally every verse and what Matthew, the writer, is trying to convey to, we would argue, first century Jews who are trying to figure out, is Jesus the Messiah, the sent one, the Christ, the Son of God? Because at that point, they don't know, right? They've been following this, what we call the Old Testament law and the Mosaic law and Moses and, and Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, is Jesus, the Son of God, is Jesus God, all that stuff, right? So, so Matthew does a really good job at bringing all of these Old Testament prophecies, things that have been foretold about who this Messiah would look like, where he would come from, all this stuff, is this the Messiah? And the reason why I, we're going to be kind of thorough on that today, we're going to actually use a lot of Old Testament stuff. I'm going to try to go through it as efficiently as possible is because it matters. Uh, I was studying for this week, and I was trying to look up some different stuff to get some contextual analysis on, on Jerusalem at this time. This is the most heightened week of the year for Jerusalem uh, in where we're reading. And so Matthew, I've talked about this, the Gospels, the last week of Jesus' ministry we call Passion Week, from Palm Sunday to what we know as Easter, right? He dies on Good Friday. That week is about a quarter of the Gospel account. So like, there's a lot in there. And so I'm just trying to inundate and absorb as much as I can about understanding what it would be like to be a common person following Jesus, what it would be like to be a Pharisee or a religious leader, and, and help us better understand the text here. And what happened was, and I don't know if this happened to you, I got lost in the, the web holes of forums. <laughs> and I just started reading people's opinions and responses about different questions, and, and it was ridiculous. But I, I was shocked at how many Orthodox Jews who basically deny that Jesus was the Messiah, like, are arguing about these fulfillments of prophecies and, and whether or not things were the way they should be and why they don't hold to that. And, and, and at the end of the day, it got me to realize, like, this is not, 
like, distant from us. You might have a friend who's agnostic or atheist, and they might be like, I believe in science, right? Which is, I can believe in science too, but, but they have these different opinions of why they don't believe in Jesus. But what you're going to realize um, in this passage is it's really uh, trying to, Jesus is trying to help the people understand this is like why I am the Messiah. And then Matthew is writing this account for those Jewish people. And so it's very much for us as it is for them, right? And understanding like this is why Jesus came and this is what he did. And so sometimes we're like, why do all these fulfillment things matter? And they, they do matter. And you'll start to understand that. And so we're going to start in verse 28. Jesus is going to tell three parables in a row, basically. We're going to cover two of them today. The third one's a little bit longer, a little bit more robust in terms of stuff we have to pull out of it. And so the first two we're going to tackle together, and they are all founded, and if you'll look, on the, the, the passage we just talked about last week. Because if you look at verse 28, it starts with, what do you think? Jesus is saying, what do you think? So it's like we're kind of continuing this conversation. He had just uh, went into the temple. This is like the second day he was there. He had just cursed the fig tree, which was symbolic for Israel and the people of Israel not doing what God wanted them to do. And he's in the temple, and the, the religious leaders come up to him, and they're like, who gives you the authority to do the stuff you're doing right now? You got all these crowds in the temple, you're flipping tables, you're teaching things, you're healing people in our house, right? In our temple, like who's who's saying you can do this, right? I made it I made a silly illustration last week about how like it would be like if you went to an ice cream shop and you just went behind the counter and like just started scooping your own ice cream. And they're like, uh, like who told you you could do that? And you're like, oh, I just I did. Like you would be silly, right? Like, why are you behind the counter? And so the the religious leader's like, why are you doing all these things in the temple? on the most heightened week of the year, right? It's high pressure. But that, that is where we're getting to with where Jesus is explaining these parables. Now, the setting is important because Jesus is talking to the religious leaders, but there are large amounts of crowds of just normal Jewish people behind him listening, right? So there's a, there's a, a great weight here. It'd be as if I took someone up here and we had a debate. It's one thing for me and that person to talk in the office, like one-on-one, but it's another thing to have everyone else listening. There's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of like walls and pride built up because you don't want to be wrong in front of all these people in your own house, right? With a job that is dependent on you knowing these things. So there's a lot of pressure. The last thing I'll say is the religious leaders is a very diverse term, but maybe you've heard a, a bunch of different like categories. You've heard of scribes or Pharisees or Sadducees or, um, or just elders or chief, chief priests, right? These, they're all very different. I know sometimes we lump them all together like the just Israel people, right? Like, they all have very important differences. And so in this case, we see it's specifically the chief priests who were working at the temple at the time and the elders or like the, the higher ups of the Jewish community. It's important to know this because the Sadducees, a lot of times people lump in and the Sadducees didn't really believe in a resurrection. So they're like not necessarily in this fight right now. I mean, they don't like Jesus, but they're not like trying to pin him on fulfilling these certain prophecies because they don't even believe in a lot of the Old Testament, the prophets and things like that, they're just more Torah, the law of God, and that's about it. So th this is not everyone, but it is the Pharisees and the, the chief priests, and they're like, who is giving this authority? And this is how Jesus um, starts it. He talks about John the Baptist, and he pins them in a question that they basically can't answer because of the crowds. And so then he goes even deeper, and he says this, what do you think? A man has two sons. He, sent, he, said, he went to the first, and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. The boy answered, I will not. It's a good son. But later, he had a change of heart, and he went. The father then went to the other son, and he said the same thing. The boy answered, I will, sir, but then did not go. Which of the two sons did his father's will? So the, the most important key phrase is here. It's not Jesus saying, 
Which of the two sons knew about the father's will? Which of the two sons had studied what the father would want? Which of the two sons said they'll do it? It's which of the two sons did the will of the father? And so what Jesus is, is implying here is there's a deep reality in this age-old, uh, I don't know what you call, like, short little quippy statements. There's a name for that. What is that called? Where it's like a short little, like, quippy, like, wisdom statement. Anyways, the age-old statement that says, actions speak louder than words, if you've heard that. What is it called? Platitude, platitude, yeah, basically platitude. Uh, actions speak louder than words, right? You've heard that, and you know it to be true. If you're like, I have a friend, and they said they'd come pick me up, and then they never showed up, like, that sucked. But if they just came, picked me up, and loved me, it'd be great, right? Like, it's bare bones. We know this to be true. Actions speak louder than words. Words are easy. You can just spout them off and burn two calories, and then you don't have to do anything later, right? But action, action requires our energy, our time. It requires all of us. Our actions is actually the lived-out version of our beliefs, which Adam was quoting uh, earlier, James K. Smith. I think it was You Are What You Love or Desiring Kingdom, that book, where he talks about, like, our loves are informed by what we do, actually, believe it or not. It's why we worship when we don't want to thank the Lord. We still thank the Lord because we know that even in our times of doubt and wrestling, it's hard. So Jesus is saying, you guys had a chance to do the will of God, and, and didn't know it, and you didn't know it, but you didn't do it. And he's kind of leaving this up to them, and then what I love is he makes them answer the questions, which is my favorite part, because I don't know if they're, like, mumbling it, or they're, like, they don't know yet, but they say, in verse 31, like, the second part, he says, they say, you know, he says, which one did the will? They say, well, the first, right? Easy answer. He went and did it the first. So Jesus says to them, I tell you the truth, tax collectors and prostitutes will go ahead of you, the religious leaders, into the kingdom of God. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did believe. Although you saw this, you did not later change your minds and believe him. Now remember, I've talked about mind a little bit. For us, it's merely brain intellect. They didn't, the first century didn't necessarily understand the whole anatomy of all that, so your mind and your heart were sort of a similar thing, and they actually kind of thought it was more your gut. Because you know, like when you have a hard conversation or something, your gut feels like terrible, right? Um, so they're like, you know, your change of your, your, your desires and your heart and your being and your thoughts, like it, you're not changing. You had the chance. And what's interesting about this, and he brings up John again, and I know that John, unfortunately, I think is just very underrated in the Christian like, we don't talk about John a lot, but John played no mistake ball. Like, he was perfect, honestly. Like, he did his job in the best way that he could, and he died a martyr's death. I mean, he did. And he, honestly, like, his, like one of his last statements is, you know, I must in, uh, decrease, and he, Jesus, must increase. Like, talk about a profound life statement. Like, hey, how's your life going? I'm just trying to decrease so Jesus can increase. Like, what a man, right? And then he was weird. He lived out in the wilderness and like ate weird food and wore, wore, wore weird clothes, right? Like John, awesome guy, okay? So I'm, I'm just trying to, trying to lift him up here a little bit for you. But the reason why John is so important in this discussion is because this is a lot of the crux of the Pharisees and the religious leaders' argument of whether or not Jesus was the Messiah. So for instance, imagine that you are on the, the banks of the Jordan and, and, and you're listening to John the Baptist, and you're like, this guy's weird, he smells bad, he like lives out in the wilderness, and he's just baptizing people, and they're repenting of their sins. And you're, you've known the, the Jewish culture, you've known the exile and the laws, and right? Like, you believing in what he's doing is a, a very profound act of faith. You have to be desperate. Why? It would be the same as if you went on YouTube today, and somebody told you the world was going to end, and they gave you a date, and you're like, 
There is an entire database in Alaska of people on YouTube, the data of people who know when the world's going to end, right? And a lot of us at this point don't listen to them, right? Maybe you do. I'm sorry if you do. I'd love to watch your video. But to be honest, like, you're not going to start building a shelter, are you? I mean, like, just stockpile the canned goods, right? Like when we had the toilet paper crisis during COVID, remember that, right? But it, it's just silly, right? Like, it, it would have to be incredibly profound, or there would have to be a majority of people that are jumping on. They're like, look at this. This is crazy. All these things are lining up and happening, right? And so as a Jewish person, to go be baptized, you're, you're, you, are, you are at the bottom of yourself. You're like, I have tried and clung to so many things, and they're not working. I'm desperate. And this man, John, who's, who's preaching words of life, like, I want it, right? And so Jesus is constantly communicating his ministry through John the Baptist. John the Baptist, repent, the kingdom of God is near. Jesus' first words, repent, the kingdom of God is here, when he starts preaching, right? Same exact message, just continuation. And the Pharisees are stuck on this. And the reason why, and this is where you're just going to have to dive with me to the Old Testament just for a little bit. You don't have to actually turn there. I made it easy. It's on the screen. But this is where we have to have a bit of empathy for the Pharisees specifically, the religious leaders in general, but the Pharisees, because the Pharisees have the base of the Bible memorized, the Old Testament, and they know, like, all of the prophecies like a Rolodex, right? And they're, like, watching Jesus like a hawk. Is he fulfilling all of these prophecies? And when you get into the deep webs of forums of, you know, Orthodox Jews and say, no, he didn't do this, he didn't do that, or whatever, like, we need to know these. They matter. Right now, I'm not saying you've got to have the whole Bible memorized, because even they had it, and that didn't work out. But I'm saying that it matters because the tension against Jesus and, and our own belief of it and understanding Matthew, why he's writing, why G, what Jesus clearly cares about, is some of this prophecy that Matthew brings in. And so there's a couple of things that these Pharisees are watching for. Some of them actually are kind of out of anyone's control. The first is that he must be a root from Jesse. Jesse, more specifically, the lineage of King David. King David is a man after God's own heart. God gives David his covenant. He says, through your line will be the sent one, the Messiah, the Christ. And so in Isaiah 11:10, it says this. He'll be a root from Jesse. will stand like a signal flag for the nations. The nations will look to him for guidance, and his residence will be majestic. So the Pharisees are immediately like, this guy was like in Nazareth to Joseph. Like we know his parents. Like this guy's a nobody, right? They didn't, they didn't know the lineage. And that's why when you read Matthew 1 and like in Luke, you have this great, long, hard to pronounce set of names that is the lineage of Jesus, right? And the, the generations and things like that. So if you ever wonder why is this in here, it's part of that. Matthew's like, hey, everyone, listen to this lineage as I start. Like when you start, like if I start a message, like you're like, how do you get people how do you get them engaged? You've got to start with a compelling story. Matthew's like, I'm going to read a really long genealogy. That's how I'm going to suck people in. But it matters. And then the second piece they'd be looking for, which was another one that was really provocative, was it says the Messiah must come and be born from Bethlehem. In Micah 5, 1 and 2, it says, As for you, Bethlehem, Epaphrathoth, which is like an adage to it, seemingly insignificant among the clans of Judah, from you a king will emerge who will rule over Israel on my behalf. God's talking. Uh, one whose origins are in the distant past. And so they have this in their mind as well. And they're like, we know where he's from. He's from Nazareth. But if you know the, if you pay attention at Christmas, right? Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And King Herod is not happy about that. And he's like, I ain't about to have the Messiah take over my job and my watch. And so he sends a bunch of soldiers to go kill every baby to and under in Bethlehem. And so anywhere from 75 to maybe 250 babies are slaughtered, boys. 
And they, they flee in the night, go to Egypt, right, come back, and then they settle in Nazareth because they're avoiding that, right? Now, I don't know if, like, Mary and Joseph showed up in Nazareth. They're like, hey, everyone, we have the Christ. Can you just keep it on the down low? Or if they didn't tell anyone, I don't know. We don't know. But what we do know is that the Pharisees at the time, like, he's from Nazareth. He can't be the Messiah. And when he, Jesus went and preached at his hometown in Nazareth, they're like, we know your dad and mom. Like, you're not the That's why they could, wouldn't believe. They just couldn't believe it. So the Pharisees, I'm not saying there we have a lot of reason to be like, I understand, but like you got to get it, right? Their job is on the line. Their job is to protect the law, to create, they've unfortunately created another boundary outside of it so that no one does actually break the law. It's becoming ridiculous, but they, they are in charge of analyzing this. They are the experts. They are to see who is the Messiah, is he really coming? And I've even told you before, there were Messiah-like figures before Jesus. So they're always having their eyes up. And so for them, there's a lot on the line here. Right? They are the ones that people look to, and so that is a big deal. And so the last one they're looking for that's probably most significant, this is why John is a big topic of conversation, is that there must be a forerunner before Jesus. If you look in Isaiah 40, it says that a voice cries out in the wilderness, clearing away for the Lord. Uh, later in Malachi 3, it says, I'm about to send my messenger who will clear the way before me. Right? Indeed, the Lord you are seeking will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you long for is certainly coming, right? So there is this prophetic knowledge that they know there must be someone before Jesus. Now, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, right beside Matthew, so that's a nice little convenient, right, um, structure of the Bible. But um, Malachi 4 is what these Pharisees are hung up on. Malachi 4, 5 through 6 says this, it says later, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So what they are doing is they are interpreting this passage very strongly that Elijah is reincarnate, like he must be reincarnate Elijah. Like coming in the same sandals and tunic that he wore however long ago, right? He's going to come back. And if, he, if he's not there, there's no Messiah, right? Because there's no forerunner. He's the wrong forerunner. So anybody that claims to be the Messiah is not capable because they have not had the correct forerunner. And so this is why John is such a big deal. Because when Jesus asked them a little bit before this, did, did John come from heaven or from earth? They're like, well, we think from earth because we not, we, he's not Elijah. But then everybody else around him is like, he's been doing some stuff. Like he's a prophet. And they don't want to make everyone mad, right, in their own house. So it's this awkward, like, what do we say, Right? How do we get Jesus in the dark and arrest him? Because he can't do it here. And this is like the tension. And this is why Jesus is so set on reminding the people of John and his role in Jesus' ministry. And this is what one of the best lines to describe this is Jesus says um, in Luke that John was the spirit and the power of Elijah. That he fulfilled the Elijah-like quality of spirit and power of what he would do. Uh, that Elijah was not going to necessarily come back as Elijah 2.0, back from the clouds or whatever, right? That, that it would be an Elijah-like figure who would, who would forerun in this way. And um, it's, it's even funnier to think about it when you think about the transfiguration because it's a very confusing moment for a lot of people, but that's where Elijah and Moses and Jesus is, and they come back down the mountain, and they're like, Elijah was there, and he's like, yes, but I tell you the new Elijah is John the Baptist, right? So this is where we start to get the tension of these Pharisees, like, this guy's wrong, and not only is he wrong, we don't like what he's teaching, He's flipping our rules upside down. He's letting prostitutes and tax collectors enter before us. Are you kidding me, right? 
He's, he's just doing everything they would not thought. It was, they thought it would be much more military and na uh, nationalistic that they will free them from the oppression of Rome, and that will be the Messiah. And he's coming in a lot different way than they thought. And so I think that when we, when we think about this tension of John, like we're thinking about these Pharisees are just trying, like they, they, they cannot wrap their minds around it. And I think for you internalizing in your life today, let's be honest, there, there are people that are no different. They're like, well, this verse means this, and I will never change my mind, right? Like this is what it means, right? And you're like, okay, like that's a tough place to be, right? Because if you are putting all your life in that, right, and you are so stubborn. And, and I think the biggest reason why we talk about the Pharisees in their hearts was that they, they knew something to be true, but they, weren't, they were so prideful they weren't willing to look at it in a different light. That's why Jesus says, you have ears, but you don't hear, right? You have eyes, but you don't see. Because they were so, their complex of their life was so built up, their walls were so high that they couldn't possibly let anything wreck them. And so they weren't willing to see it in this way. They weren't willing to understand it. And you see glimpses of Pharisees being like, hmm, like Nicodemus and asking questions. So there are some of those people, but in general, they are, they are just so set in their ways. And I've talked about how almost all religious leaders are wealthy. They're from families of power and influence. They're, they are rich. <laughs> so there's a lot at stake here, okay? You not only lose your job, you lose your, your family name, like, you, you know, dishonor your family. There's a lot at stake. And that's the tension that we deal with. And so as we go into the second parable here that Jesus is going to say. This one is going to kind of drive it even deeper. He says in verse 33, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. If you're noticing a pattern on vineyards here, uh, anytime you see the word vineyard in the New Testament, you can probably just replace it with Israel because that's pretty much always what it means. Israel in the Old Testament was a symbol of this vineyard that was called to bear fruit. It was God's chosen nation, right? Bear fruit, which means follow his law and be a light to the rest of the world. So you don't even fo just follow the law, but you are to, like, people are supposed to see that and be like, wow, I want that. I want to be a part of that. And they were failing not only at the law, but being a, a nation worthy of wanting to be like. He builds a vineyard, and then in the rest of the verse, he put a fence around it, dug a pit for the wine press, built a watchtower right there. He's building the scene. Then he leased it to the tenant farmers who went on a journey. And when the harvest time was near, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his portion of the crop. R.T. France talks about the, the context of this. He's one of the scholars we use a lot. But he basically is, is saying that the absentee landowner would be a very familiar situation for all of these religious leaders because all of them were wealthy and almost all of them would have owned land that was outside of Jerusalem. The best way to describe this is like if you're a senator, state senator, right? You're a senator for a certain state, but you spend a lot of time in D.C., right? Because that's where all the specific action happens. It's the same thing. Pharisee is going to spend most of their time in Jerusalem and that with other Pharisees and just sort of building that temple culture, all that type of stuff. So they own a bunch of vineyards and they give it over to people and they're like, give me the money, right? It's like owning a bunch of rentals, right? Give me the money. So Jesus is not a, he's, pretty, he's striking pretty close to the belt there for these guys. And uh, the tenants, sorry, the tenants seized the slaves that he sent. So he sent slaves to collect his due. They seized the slaves, they beat one, killed another, and stoned another. And again, he sent other slaves. He did it again, more than the first. And they treated him the exact same way. Now, these messengers, uh, we, call them, like, we call them slaves, but the best term for these is servants because a slave that would do this role would be a pretty high up in your job. You have to trust them to go take the money and like, actually bring it back, right? So slaves, like I said, we have a very negative, like, very specific definition. But servants is probably better understanding. But he sends his servants, his high up servants, eventually, to go collect this money for him that, he, that is his, that had been agreed upon by the tenants, 
and they just sort of like keep killing them, which you know is not a good not a good way to impress the boss. And they're like refusing, right? And then it gets to this point where it says in verse 37, finally, the landowner sends his son saying, they'll respect my son, right? Now, what's going on here is you're already probably like, this is crazy. Like the landowner has had several of his servants killed by these people. Why? Like this dude is gracious. Let's be honest, right? I mean, if I send someone to collect money and like, <laughs> let's just even say they weren't killed. Let's just say they cursed him out and left. Like I'd, I'd go talk to that person, right? I'd be like, you're not working here anymore, bro. Like, sorry. But the landowner just keeps showing unconditional grace. It's, it's almost ridiculous, right? And then he's like, you know what? I'll send my son. Lastly, they will not mistreat my son. In this culture, a son, when they would come, would have the authority of the father. So he would essentially have the exact, if the landowner is not present, he is the landowner, basically. In today's world, it's not always how it works. Like if you were a landowner and you sent your son and they weren't on like the, you know, in the LLC or they didn't have like paperwork right, it wouldn't necessarily be that way. But in this culture, it was assumed. It was a bloodline right. So he's like, I'll send my son and they, and, and they will surely, right? It, what's more clear that I care than my son? So he sends his son, and when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now Jesus asks, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Now, once again, this is just ridiculous. Like, what, why, you know, you're like, these tenants are idiots. Like, what are they thinking? It's like the Alamo. They're going to, like, stand and, like, this is our vineyard now. Like, no. It's a rich vineyard owner who you just hire a bunch of, like, mercenaries just go in there and wreck everyone and clean them out and then rehire, right? Like, there's no way that they're, first, going to even not get killed or, like, thrown in jail. Second, that they're going to get his inheritance, right? I mean, that's just silly. That's, like, that just doesn't happen, right? It'd be like if, if I robbed a jewelry store and I was, like, I am not leaving here until I get Jared's son's inheritance of this jewelry store. Like, people would just be like, what is wrong with you, dude? Right? Like, it's just, it's, they, don't, like, they don't even have any leverage. Like, they don't, right? But they, you build up your own kingdom, and you think you're invincible, right? And you think you can do whatever you want. You can treat people however you want. You think you know what's best, or you're greedy, or you name it, right? Maybe they were just greedy, and they didn't want to pay. And so when the, land, the landowner comes back, he asks the Pharisees and the, and the, and the elders, and the, right, what would they do? Or what, what would the landowner do? And they said to him, and I don't know if this is like tongue-in-cheek or what, but uh, they say to him, he will utterly destroy those evil men. Then he will leave, lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his portion of the harvest. Now remember, all the crowds are listening. They're in their own temple. Pharisees are like, they would destroy those guys. And then one of them is like, oh no, that's us that we just said, right? We just said to destroy us, right? It's like a very caught you moment. And maybe they knew, like when they said it, but maybe they didn't. We, we read later that they, they, they had figured it out, but we don't necessarily know when. It wasn't like, well, they maybe destroy those people. But they are like, oh no, right? There's another story in, in where David in the Old Testament does this, where he commits adultery, kills her husband, bad story. And Nathan the prophet comes in and points and shows him this, but he does it through like kind of a cryptic story about like a shepherd and stealing a sheep. And he's like, what would you do, King David? He's like, I'd take that man, and I'd you know, beat him up, and I'd kill him. It's terrible. And then he's like, you are that man. And he's like, yeah. you know? You're like, come on, David. You didn't see that one coming, man? You took a guy's wife and then killed him in the front lines. It's, so it, but this is like what happens, okay? Can you imagine being a Pharisee right now? You are not wanting to be a Pharisee in that moment. And to, to further just twist the, 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 the wound, 
He says to them, one of my favorite phrases to the guys who have the entire, basically the entire Bible memorized, have you read in the scriptures? It's like asking a math teacher, have you ever done simple addition? And they're like, that is condescending to ask that. Of course I have. He says, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and this is from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting Psalm 118, which they would have known, but um, would have not probably been understood in a messianic light, meaning it wasn't, they didn't realize that it applied to the Messiah. So he's, he's taking the scripture, and he's like, you guys know this, just put it in its context, right? And he's saying the builders rejected, he, you know, Jesus is pointing to him being the cornerstone, they rejected, but he still becomes the cornerstone, right? So it's this kind of confusing statement because you're like, well, if we reject him and he's not on our team, how would he have any sort of leverage in this? But he's, taught, he's kind of foretelling, right, his death that he's been talking about. Because for this reason, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Now, just pause there one sec. It's confusing. Produce its fruit. It's a, it's a, it's a vineyard that has already produced grapes, right? Like, so it did produce fruit. So what is Jesus getting at? And the best way I would describe this is the fruit is not the fruit itself. It is the willingness to give back to God what is his. That is the fruit. It's generosity. And I would say stewardship because it's not even theirs, right? It's hard to be generous. It's easy to be generous with someone else's money, right? You're like, that doesn't matter to me, right? I talked about, I've talked about this before, but the idea, we talk about giving, right? Giving to your local church, missionaries, whatever, being generous. Giving is not even the right word. It is, it is more accurately described as bringing because you are giving back God what he has given you that is his. And the best way to describe this, the simplest way, is if, if you need to get something from Home Depot and you're like, Trey, I don't have a truck, right? Can I borrow your truck? I have a, I have a ridge line. And I'd be like, sure, you know what? Go, go for it. Like, I'm generous. No problem. You don't owe me anything, right? It would be like you coming back and being like, hey, Trey, guess what I got you? And I'm like, what? And you're like, your truck. You'd be like, yeah, I know. It's my truck. You wouldn't be like, it's amazing, isn't it? Aren't I so generous? I gave you back what was yours. Isn't that crazy? And so in the same way, the fruit is not the actual grapes or maybe even the money. It is the fact that they are willing to give back what was the landowners that he let them work on, right? So there's a selfishness here. So Jesus is pointing to something much deeper. It's the temple and all that, which was the means at which the Israelite people had an identity through God, right? That was where God and the people would meet, the temple, He's saying, you, you guys have not produced its fruit. Meaning, yes, the temple runs, and you have sacrifices, and people atone for their sins, but the fruit of, is not of, of yielding to, to trusting in the kingdom. And my plan is you are just selfishly holding on to your money, your status, your power, your puffed-up knowledge, and you're missing it. And so he, he uses this illustration of his own sacrifices. The one who falls on this stone, he's talking about himself, because he just used the stone analogy, will be broken to pieces and the one on whom it falls will be crushed. Meaning, like, it's, you're not going to survive in the kingdom if you don't trust in the cornerstone. And so here, I love this. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables and they realized that he was speaking about them, they wanted to arrest him. No surprise, right? Um, it doesn't go well. And they were afraid of the crowds because the crowds regarded him as a prophet. They're like, this, you know, we've seen this guy heal people. He just raised Lazarus from the dead a few days ago. This is insane, right? Clearly, he's something. He's not just a normal guy. And the Pharisees then obviously are trying to figure out how do we get this guy in the dark or whatever and take him out. So that's kind of the, the, the story. But in this parable, right, we have, and I'm, I'm, maybe you've already latched onto most of the, print, the symbols, but the vineyard is 
is this kingdom. It's, it's what God has given us. He has owned it. He has started it. And he has given us to be co-laborers with him in this vineyard. And we are called to bear fruit by giving God, working diligently, giving God, right, what is back, what is his. And that's not just financial. That's like kingdom impact. If you die and you have no kingdom impact, you did not work in God's vineyard, right? And that's why he says in the first one, it doesn't matter how long it takes you to realize that that's your job, but if you say you're going to do it and you don't do it, you're missing it. But if you're, if you're resistant, you're hesitant, you're nervous, you've had abuse, you're anxious, you, you're, you're vehemently against it, and then you repent and you turn from that, there's never a moment that is too late and you're too far from the grace of God. And you can work, show up in the vineyard and be like, I'm ready to go, right? And so Jesus in two parables is, is doing so many things. He's He's totally destroying the Pharisees' pride in their kingdom. He is reminding them and, and communicating theologically John the Baptist and his fulfillment and all of that. But he's also preaching the gospel to everyone around him, right? Like, it's just so cool. He's like, hey, guess who's first in the kingdom, guys? The tax collectors and the prostitutes. And they're like, what? Well, then I, I could probably go. Those people are the worst, right? Like, you know, or, or they see, oh, well, these guys aren't going to go. Whoa, I thought they were the best. Why are they not going to go then? And he spells it out. He's like, you're not bearing fruit. Okay, well, wow, then what's fruit? And he's saying, well, it's, it's about repentance. It's about turning from your ways. It's not about what you say. It's about you turning in action to follow Jesus. And I, I love the idea of the cornerstone because in this moment, I think Jesus is cornerstoning himself for all these people. This is a picture of a cornerstone if you've never seen one. Um, now, if you look, it's a whole section of cornerstones. That's pretty common. Sometimes they set the first one, and then it, it will set the plumb lines and everything for the rest of the, the wall or the building or the structure. This one has one on each corner because, as you can see, the other ones aren't as shaped. So you got to work with what you got. But cornerstones were of immense significance. Now, sometimes they'll put them in, like, churches, like, a couple feet up, and they'll, like, be like, Jesus Christ found him or whatever, right, like, as a decorative thing. But what's crazy in the ancient culture, cornerstones were not just a Jewish thing, right? But they had, people, like, worshipped these things. Like, they would, when they would build buildings, they believed astronomically that, like, northeast direction was good for favor and fortune and all this. So they would place the cornerstone in a specific direction. Some cultures would literally, like, sing to it and have, like, a ceremonial service for the cornerstone. Some cultures would even literally put blood over it as, like, a sacrifice, right, for buildings. And... This cornerstone idea, now I'm not saying like any of them did that, like Romans or Jewish, but that there's, there's research of histories that did that. Like Jesus saying, I am that for you. This new kingdom that these guys aren't going to be in because they're missing it, that I'm, I'm giving the vineyard over to a new people. Here's the start. Here's the cornerstone right here. And so all these people are getting to see this, this Messiah. And then when you know, he dies, they're like, well, this is hopeless. And then he resurrects. And it's like, oh, my gosh, it's all clicking together now, right? Like there, that was rejected has now become, the, the act of sacrifice is the foundation for the kingdom of God. So the cornerstone idea has deeply profound implications, but um, to close this out, the transition into our time of formation, uh, we, it, it's really cool to see these two laced together because I love what he says. He's, he's like, I'm not done yet, right? He says, I will give it over. Even, even the Pharisees are like, well, I'll give it over to to a new tenants. He says, I, you know, I will, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Who are those people? Us, right? It is the church of Jesus. We, Peter, the rock, disciples, right, founded on his cornerstone, his death, burial, resurrection, right, his ministry. That is us. 
we are the new nation of people. And at that point, it was Israel, and then now it's extended to the Gentiles, which is people who aren't Jewish, which is us. We are a part of that bearing fruit in his vineyard. So there's a couple questions you can ask yourself. Am I in the vineyard? Maybe, did I say I would go to the vineyard and I haven't? Am I in the vineyard, but I don't really believe that it's God's vineyard? I think it's mine, or I can start hiding things, and right, I can I not give over to God what is his, or there's things in my life that I don't want to bring before God or others that I want to hide or forget about, or right? Like, there is deep implications for not only us, but the people that he's talking to that, you know, are we, are we truly understanding Jesus' kingdom? And so as we go into a time of formation, we call it formation because we are being formed into the image of Christ. And what I mean by that is when you repent, right? When you say, even if you don't say you're going to do it, and then you go, to, you go do it, you repent, you turn, you follow Jesus' way, you believe in him, you don't just do that one time. It's not like a one and done, right? It is becoming more like Jesus is continually repenting and turning yourself to him daily, hourly, right? Every, at every point of our lives, in every area of our lives. And so formation helps us put our hands in a, in a tangible way to do the will of God so that we might experience reality of repentance in our life. So we do that through the bread and cup, which is the physical reality of a symbol of Jesus' death and uh, his body and blood broken for us. So if you, if you believe in Jesus and you affirm that, that's a reminder of that every Sunday. And then we, we talk about giving, bringing, right, is an act of worship and obedience in that, of giving God back what is his. And then reflection, obviously, is a time to process. And then lastly, we have people in the back who would love to pray for you. And I'll just say this. Some of you, you're, 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 your wall is the pride and fear of, of just letting other people know you're, you're in. Like, you're, you're first you're left, you're right, you're nervous, right? Even Christians do this with prayer. Like, well, if I go up and pray, people are going to think there's something wrong with me. And I'm like, there is something wrong with you. There's something wrong with all of us, right? That's why we're here, uh, right? The healthy don't need a doctor, only the sick, right? So I just encourage you as you reflect on that, there are people in the back who are here specifically just to pray for you. And if that's something, if this is something that you've been reflecting on for the first time, repenting for the hundredth millionth time, would you lay it before the Lord? And uh, then we're going to close in one more song. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.